As you know, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks, that we're trying something new this year for 2024. It's a Bible reading challenge where people have been encouraged to grab a, a, a Bible reading calendar from the Welcome Center. We've given, over, given away over 70 of those, and there's more at the Welcome Center if you still need one. And the idea is that we collectively, as a church, for those who desire, will be reading through the Bible this year. Um, and then what I am going to do for the preaching is that on Sunday, my plan is that I'm going to pull one of the chapters from one of the readings that we did that week and then preach a sermon on it. So to start the year, I'm going to stay in the Acts reading. So if you have been following the plan, we, we read in Genesis, we read in Ezra, we read in Matthew, we read in Acts this, this week, all this week. I'm going to stick in the Acts readings uh, until we're through that book. So if you're only reading one chapter uh, a day, that's great, that's awesome. Um, you may want to select the Acts readings uh, for this month because that's what I'm going to be preaching from. So today I'm going to be preaching from Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7. Uh, next week I would be pulling uh, some passage from Acts 8 to 14. Those chapters are the chapters we'll read in the coming week, chapters 8 to 14. I would pull one of those chapters and preach on it next Sunday, except I'm away next Sunday. I'm going to be traveling, and so someone else will be here preaching. But that'll be the pattern when I'm here, is that I'll pull one of those readings and preach on that. We'll see how that goes. It is an experiment. I have never done uh, a sermon series like this before, so we'll see how it goes. And if it's a failure, I will not hesitate to abort the mission, and we'll do something else. But we'll try it. We'll try it. Okay. Um, I'm going to preach, as I said, from Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7, but i got to get us some context. So some people, I know, and that's totally fine, didn't read uh, Acts 1 to 7 this week, and that's fine, but let's get some context instead of just jumping right into Acts 6. And before we do that, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for uh, your word and how powerful it is. Thank you that your word is effective. Thank you that it's not a regular book, but then when we read it by faith, you are at work in our hearts, and you are shaping us and forming us into the kind of people and church that you want us to be. And Lord, I'm very excited about the work that you're going to get done in our midst, in our hearts, in our families, in our communities, in our church, through the time that we will spend reading your Holy Scripture. I pray and ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Uh, may May you use... Um, your word to shape us into the kind of people that you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's get up to Acts chapter 6. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended back up to the heaven. Right at the first chapter of Acts 1, Jesus goes back up to heaven, but before he does, he commissions his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay? That is a little preview. Those words that Jesus said before he ascended back up to heaven is a preview of the book of Acts. That's what happens in the book of Acts. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out because his disciples are his witnesses. The church expands More churches are planted. God's kingdom is established here on earth in the hearts of his people. That happens just like Jesus said it would. We get to Acts 2, and we see the fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament, from Joel, 
where the Holy Spirit descends upon the people of God, empowering them to fulfill the role that God has called them to fill, enabling them to be the church, the body of Christ. And Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon on that day of Pentecost. And we're told that after that sermon, 3,000 people were added to the church that day. Amazing. Then we move on to Acts 3, and we get a miracle. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray, and they come across a man who has been lame since birth, and Peter uh, and John miraculously heal that man. And when that happens, as you can imagine, a crowd gathers, and Peter takes that opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to that crowd. In Acts chapter 4, we begin to see the first signs of persecution of the church as it grows. Peter and John are hauled before the Jewish council and the chief priests. They're put on trial for the things they're saying about Jesus. They're threatened. They're told to stop preaching that message about Jesus. And they respond and they say, listen, I'm afraid, as much as we would like to respect what you're saying, we are under the authority of God. And we are going to choose to obey God rather than you. And you can do with us what you like. They end up being released, but told, stop preaching that message that you're preaching. And of course, they don't, and they won't. Then we get to Acts chapter 5, and we get a very scary story about Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, At the time, this early church, uh, the members of the church, the new Christians, are selling their possessions, and then they're giving them to the church, and then they're living collectively in community. This is not a forced thing. This is not a required thing. This is something people are voluntarily choosing to do. And Ananias and Sapphira, as a couple, husband and wife, they, they, they kind of wanted to participate in that. They, they, there was some appeal there, but they kind of didn't want to participate in that. And so they sort of kind of did it halfway. They did sell their property, And they did give the proceeds to the church, but they only gave part of it. That really wouldn't be a problem at all. That's fine. That's their choice. Except that they lied about it, and they said that they did give it all. And in a truly shocking turn of events, and if you read Acts 5 for the first time in your life this week, which a couple of my kids did, you're shocked by the way this story turns out. Um, They drop dead. (laughs) They are struck dead by God for lying to God. Now, We can all be thankful that God does not typically deal with us by meeting out justice in such a swift and harsh way. Uh, One of my kids actually said to me, Dad, that felt unfair when I read that. We can be thankful that God doesn't deal with us that way, but what I pointed out to my son who said that to me was, yeah, I, I get it. I know why you feel that way, but actually, let's think about that a little bit. Was that fair or unfair? Was God being fair or unfair? And we had to think that through. And well, actually, God is well within his rights to do that. And no doubt when that happened, that incident served to impress upon the hearts of those early Christians just how serious God is about our sin and our obedience to him. Can you imagine? If you saw that happen, that would, that would put a wobble in your knees, right? That would put the fear of God in, in your heart. Now, what, what me and my son talked about, we're very grateful that God does not do that on a regular basis. We're very grateful that God extends mercy and grace. But it's not unfair 
when God meets out justice, when humans get what they deserve. That's not unfair. What we've seen so far when you, through Acts chapter 5 is that the church is expanding, it's growing, people are coming to faith, churches are being planted, miracles are happening, Christians are living in fellowship with one another, they're living in community with one another. The church is also starting to be persecuted, not only by the Jewish leaders, but also starting to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. And now, now we come to Acts 6. Acts 6 and verses 1 to 7 reads like this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And this is the word of the Lord. Based on this text, those seven verses, I, 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 we can observe four things that should mark a healthy church. I, I, I could preach a sermon about deacons from this passage, and I have before, and that's important, and deacons are important to the church, and we've got awesome deacons here at Ebenezer, but I'm not going to preach that sermon. I'm going to preach a sermon on four things that we see in this passage that mark a healthy church. And here they are. I, I put it all into one big run-on sentence. A healthy church is a group of disciples of Jesus who faithfully reflect their community, who humbly use their gifts to serve others, and who are committed to the centrality of the Word of God. I'll read that again, but then we'll, we'll go through it more slowly. A healthy church is a group of disciples of Jesus who faithfully reflect their community, who humbly use their gifts to serve others, and who are committed to the centrality of God's word. All right, so those, there's four points in that sentence, and that's going to be the four points of this sermon. So first, a healthy church consists of disciples of Jesus Christ. This is actually Acts 6. This is the first time we come across the word disciples in the book of Acts. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Three times, Luke uses the word disciples to refer to the church collectively. Disciples. In fact, Luke uses those words interchangeably. The church consists of all the disciples of Jesus. Everyone who is part of the church is a disciple. That was true in the first century. That is true in the 21st century. Everyone who is part of the church is a disciple of Jesus. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not part of the church. Whether or not you actually physically attend the meetings, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not a part of the church. So what does it mean to be a disciple? 
Discipleship begins, it is initiated by Jesus himself. It begins with a call from Jesus. He initiates the discipleship process, and it's worth noting that that is not typically the way the discipleship process worked in the first century. What was supposed to happen is the student goes out and seeks out a teacher and asks that teacher, can I become your disciple? Teachers did not go out recruiting followers. But in the case of Jesus, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they were not out looking for Jesus at all. They weren't even thinking about Jesus. They were fishing. And God came along and called them. And you and I weren't looking for Jesus either. We didn't earn his favor. We didn't track him down. We didn't impress him with our godliness. He simply reached out into our lives and called us and said, I'll make you clean. I'll wash away your sin. I'll remove your guilt and shame. I will close you in my righteousness. You follow me. And those of us who have responded to that call of faith have become disciples of Jesus. That word disciple literally means learner or pupil, student, but it's more than just being a student. Discipleship is a way of life, right? Discipleship isn't something you do. It's something you are or you become. It's It defines you. We sit at the feet of our great Savior and teacher, and not only do we learn from him, right? He has loads to teach us, but we follow him. We imitate him. We desire to become like him. We are his disciples, his students, his pupils, his learners, his followers. To say that you are a disciple of Jesus does not mean that you perfectly follow him every single opportunity that you get. It means that he is your master. You sit under him and you are learning, learning to follow him, becoming more and more like him. It's a process. So the church, a healthy church, is made up of disciples. That's obvious, but it's worth saying. Secondly, a healthy church should faithfully reflect the community that they're in. What I mean by that is this. If the church is being faithful, and its proclamation of the message of the gospel, then all of the various people groups, economic groups in the community, will most likely be represented in the church. church, That's what I mean when I say the church will reflect the community. Whatever community the church is in, the church should be populated by disciples that reflect that community. Why, why Why are we talking about this from Acts 6? Where is that in Acts 6? Well, verse 1 says, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. The Hellenists were Jewish people who spoke Greek. The Hebrews were native Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic. And then in verse 5, we read about Nicholas, who was a proselyte. It's a big word. It means that he was a Gentile who converted to become a Jew and who then converted to become a Christian. So we've got Greek Jews, we've got Hebrew Jews, we've got converted pagan Jews who are all now disciples of Jesus Christ in the same local church. We also know that there are all kinds of different social and economic groups represented in this early church in Jerusalem. Widows, landowners, former tax collectors, fishermen, physicians, former teachers of the law, former beggars. It's a very unlikely group of people. It crosses all the social boundaries that you can think of. All of them have been crossed by this church. 
It is a group that faithfully represents all the different walks of life of their community. All the different socioeconomic statuses, all the former religions, all, all the different demographics of the community are represented in this local church. It's a brand new movement. It's just happening. And it already reflects the incredible ethnic and ec economic and social diversity of their community. Well, why is that important? Why is that even worth mentioning? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, this is important because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. And our commission is to proclaim it to everyone, right? Jesus says that to his disciples, which are us, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, everywhere, to everyone. God has people called from everywhere. All people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation have been reconciled to God, first and foremost. We're forgiven and reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to each other, united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth gets lived out in the context of the local church. If a local church is only reaching out to one kind of people, to people that are like them, then that's a problem. And churches like that tend to misrepresent the reconciling and uniting effects of the gospel. If the first century church only reached out to people who were like them, then there would be no non-Jewish people like you and me who are part of it. The early church had to cross boundaries, make themselves a bit uncomfortable, and speak to people who were different than them. What I'm saying is that when it, the church is faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in its own local context, wherever that is, then it will inevitably reflect the diversity of that community, the ethnic, economic, social diversity in their own community. That was definitely the case in the first century church. Is that a hard thing to do? Of course it is. Does that put people in awkward, uncomfortable positions? Sometimes it does. Does that create misunderstandings and problems? Well, it did in the early church, didn't it? These Greek-speaking widows are getting overlooked in the distribution of goods. Well, we don't know if they were purposefully getting neglected or if this was an honest oversight, but either way, this multicultural dynamic is creating problems for them. It's creating divisions for them. It's creating grumbling and complaining. And notice that the solution is not, all right, well, then we'll just split up into two groups. That would be easiest for everyone, right? Let's get the Greek-speaking Jews over here and the Hebrew-speaking Jews over here. Fine, no problem anymore. They don't even consider that as a solution. That is not the solution. The solution is, how about this? Let's assign some wise and godly people who can sort this out and work through it. They decided that it was worth the effort to figure this out and to stay together. The gospel is for everyone, and the gospel is good. The gospel breaks down the barriers that typically divide us. That's a beautiful thing about the gospel. That's a beautiful thing about the church, is that we're not all the same, but we've been united by the same 
Savior. Any other barrier gets broken down, racial, economic, or otherwise. It is good for our own souls. It humbles and stretches and grows us. And it is good for our witness to the world when we cross those boundaries and represent diversity. If we really are disciples of Jesus, if we really are sitting at his feet and following where he leads, it will be good for us to notice how many boundaries, social boundaries, that Jesus crossed during his earthly ministry. He didn't seem to have any hang-ups about ministering to poor people or women or diseased people or Samaritans or Romans or whatever. He loved everyone and he proclaimed the truth wherever he went. Okay, that's the second sign of a healthy church in this text. Third, a healthy church is a group of disciples who humbly use their gifts to serve one another. Verse 1 identifies the problem in the church, the Hellenistic widows being overlooked and the daily distribution of the goods. Everyone in the community was, in theory, supposed to be taken care of. Now there's a situation where that's not happening. The church is not doing the thing that it was supposed to do. And people begin to complain. And then verse 2 tells us that the apostles summon all the disciples together. That's the whole church, right? All the disciples are the whole church. And they address the church and they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, why did they say it like that? Why did they say it's not right for us to do this thing? My guess as I thought about that this week is that some people were probably saying that they should be the ones to do something about it. I have no doubt that in the, in, in the context of their complaining, some of the people were probably saying, hey, why don't the apostles fix this problem? What are they doing? How are they spending their time? Why don't they deal with this? Aren't they the leaders? Aren't they supposed to do something about this? And I think it would have been so tempting for the apostles to do just that, to be like, all right, we can fix this. We'll do it. But that is not how a healthy church works. You don't just take the most talented and gifted people and give them all the responsibilities and let everyone else sit back and watch. That is not a healthy church. A healthy church is one where the load is distributed equally among the whole body and joyfully shared as everyone pitches in with their gifts and resources and times and talents as fits their situation and their calling and their gifting and serves faithfully. We're told in verse 4 that the apostles' primary calling was to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. They needed to spend long hours praying and meditating on scripture so that they could teach and preach it. There's no shortcut way to do that. It takes time. Time is finite. If the apostles are going to do that right, they cannot get distracted by the thousands of other urgent things that need to be done in the community. That doesn't mean those other things are not important. They definitely are important, but the apostles are not called to do them. And so seven men who were godly and full of the Spirit and wisdom were assigned to that very important task. Now, if those seven guys were cynical or prideful, they probably would have said something like, wait a minute, you apostles are too important to serve tables, but we're not? What makes you think that you're better than us? What makes you think you're more important than us? Why are you too good to serve tables? But they didn't say that. There's nothing like that in this chapter. They knew that serving the church is a position of honor. And if you watch a healthy church, you'll see that when there's work to be done, there will be a race to see who can get there first and do it. All right, finally, fourth, the fourth 
thing that I see here as Mark marks a healthy church is a bunch of disciples who are committed to the centrality of the Word of God. The Word is central in this description of the early church. The apostles make reference to preaching the Word, ministering the Word. Verse 7 says, The Word of God continued to increase. That's a funny way to say it, isn't it? The Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The Word of God it's not increasing like it's not getting bigger. It's, it, it, it's growing the church. The Word of God is growing the church. The Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The Word of God should be so sweet to us. We base our whole lives, that's this amazing thing, we base our whole lives on the truths contained in this book. We meet our Savior, not metaphorically, but literally, in the pages of this book. We find hope, courage, comfort, wisdom, peace, strength, joy, and many, many more things here in this book. We should fear no human here at Ebenezer, but we should tremble before the Word of God. We should receive it as a gift, a feast laid out by the very hand of God himself for the nourishment of his people, right? This is a meal that God prepared for us, and he serves it with love, and it nourishes us and strengthens us. So I just want to close our time this morning with an example from the life of a, of a man. He, he was a, a general in the army. His name's William Harrison. I'll just share this example of his life um, as encouragement for you and for me as we embark on this new year and as uh, we make a commitment to orient our lives around God's Word. I got this story about William Harrison from Kent Hughes, pastor in Illinois. Um, General Harrison was the most decorated soldier in the infantry division that General Eisenhower named the number one infantry division in World War II. General Harrison received the Distinguished Silver Cross, he received the Silver Star, he received the Bronze Medal for Valor, and he received the Purple Heart. General Harrison was a beloved leader of men, he was a soldier's soldier, he had obviously an incredibly busy life, and he was an amazing and committed man of God's Word. Here's his story, when he was 20 years old, he was a student in a military school, West Point, and he made a commitment at the age of 20 that he would read through the Old Testament every single year once and read through the New Testament every single year four times. He kept that commitment every single year of his entire life from the age of 20 until he died at the age of 90. He kept that commitment even during World War II when he was serving as a general in the army. He kept up with his daily reading through the whole war such that when World War II ended, he was right on target, right on track with his daily scripture reading. At the age of 90, he was no longer able to read his Bible anymore because his eyesight failed and so he couldn't read. But by that time, he had read through the Old Testament 70 times in his life and he had read through the New Testament 280 times in his life. His closest friends, and associates' testimony that every single area of his life was informed by the scriptures. Everything. 
about his life was informed by this book. When he cut, he bled Bible. That's what they said about him. Whenever he faced a trial or a problem, he always brought the Bible to bear on his circumstances. That is what it looks like to be committed to the centrality of God's word in your life. All of life viewed through the lens of Scripture. I'm not saying you got to read the Old Testament every year and the New Testament four times a year. I'm not saying that. That was his calling. That was the thing that God laid on his heart. You don't have to do that. But all of life viewed through the lens of Scripture, that we do have to do. That is what we should be like as a church. How are we going to achieve that? Well, it's actually quite simple. We're going to read it, we're going to believe it, and we're going to submit our lives to what it says. That simple. And we're going to talk about it with one another. It's, this book should be the fuel for our fellowship. That's what it says. That's how the Bible, when the Bible speaks about itself, like in Deuteronomy 6, when it says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligently teach this book to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Okay, that covers every, every action you could be doing. Right? When you sit, when you walk, when you lay down, when you rise, you're supposed to be talking about this. What else do you do besides those things? We're supposed to be talking about this all the time, diligently teaching our children. That is a comprehensive picture of the role of the Word of God in the life of God's people. It's on our heart. We teach it, we talk about it, and we obey it. All right, those are four marks of a healthy church that I see in this little short story in Acts 6. A healthy church consists of disciples of Jesus, obviously. A healthy church reflects the diversity of its own community, wherever it is. It's proclaiming the message of the gospel of Jesus to the community. And those people, some of them, are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and becoming part of the local church. A local church is full of members who are eager to use their gifts to serve, are looking, actively looking for ways to find the honor of serving, and a healthy local church is or oriented around the authority of God's word. May those things be true of us. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this uh, accounting of the early days, the early years of the New Testament church. Thank you. It's exciting, Lord. It's exciting to read about it. It's exciting to hear how those early days unfolded. It's even exciting to hear about this challenge that they faced and how they approached it and what they did and, and, and how they addressed those issues. And, and we thank you for sharing these things with us. It's good for us to hear these things. And we pray now for our church in the 21st century. You're the same God. You haven't changed. The gospel is the same gospel. The message that we proclaim and believe is the same message that the apostles and disciples proclaimed and believed. We thank you for that. And we pray that these things that we see in this passage, in this early church, would be true of us as well. And Lord, we recognize that we're not that great. Uh, we're not able to pull that off in our own strength. We're not that smart. Uh, but we don't have to be. Because it's you that's at work in us and through us. And so we're just asking you, have your way with us. Do what you want with us. We're, we stand ready to be useful in your hands. In Christ's name, amen.